Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. On today's daily NYFF 61 edition, we'll be joined for the North American premiere of Maestro, our spotlight gala selection by screenwriter Josh Singer, producer Christy McCosco-Krieger, Leonard Bernstein's daughter Jamie Bernstein, makeup designer Kazuhiro, costume designer Mark Bridges, production designer Kevin Thompson, production sound mixer Steve Morrow, and Yannick Nezisigan, the conducting consultant and conductor for new recordings and music director of the Metropolitan Opera, is NYFF programmer Justin Chang. In his directorial follow-up to A Star is Born, Bradley Cooper dramatizes the public and private lives of legendary musician Leonard Bernstein with sensitivity, visual ingenuity, and symphonic splendor. Coasting on the boundless energy of its subject's runaway genius, Maestro transports the viewer back to a vividly recreated post-war New York when Bernstein, portrayed by Cooper, began his stratospheric rise to international fame as both a conductor and composer, and also when he first met Felicia the actress whom he would marry and spend his life with. Maestro is a tender, often intensely emotional film about the different faces one wears when living in the public eye, depicting the complicated yet devoted decades-spanning relationship between Leonard and Felicia. Fueled by Cooper and Mulligan's perfectly matched duet of towering performances, Matthew Libatique's balletic cinematography, and of course, Bernstein's thrilling music, Maestro is a tour de force for its director. A Netflix release presented at NYFF in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. To learn more and get tickets for this year's New York Film Festival, visit filmlink.org. Enjoy this conversation about Maestro, which opens in theaters November 22nd and premieres on Netflix December 20th. Before I begin, I just want to acknowledge um, how pleased we are that uh, Josh could be with us um, with the writer strike over and um, up on stage. And I want to acknowledge how odd I know it must be to be speaking about the film uh, with Bradley Cooper and Carrie Mulligan, uh, among others, not present, but I know their um, amazing contributions will be discussed um, by all of you and, and your own as well. So thank you all for being here. Um, I want to start at the beginning. I know this has been a long gestating project with a lot of moving pieces, and I'm going to try to piece this puzzle together as best I can. Please bear with me, and I apologize if I go out of order, but I'll start with you, Josh. Um, I know that you came on to write, came on board to write this film nine years ago, I believe. So what brought you into this, and can you talk about uh, your collaboration with um, co-writing with Bradley? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I, I want to take just a second and thank David Goodman and Chris Kaiser and the WGA Negotiating Committee that I think bravely led us uh, over the last five months into, you know, a necessary and, and great agreement that, uh, you know, will protect writers uh, for a long time. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> and I want to thank the AMPTP for making a deal so I could sit here. So, um, uh, you know, so nine years ago, Fred Berner and Amy Durning, uh, who were the original producers on the project, uh, approached me uh, to tell the story about, you know, Leonard Bernstein um, uh, and Marty Scorsese at that point was attached to direct. Um, and as a, you know, nice Jewish boy who grew up singing in synagogue choir um, and uh, so had a, a real uh, love of music and specifically music with some... Uh, 
some Judaism laced through as I, as much of Lenny's music was, um, I was attracted to the project and I spent, uh, two or three years sort of wandering in the desert, uh, doing research, talking to the family a little bit. They introduced me to some wonderful people like Ofra Big Kale and, and Shirley Gabus, uh, and Ellen Adler, folks who had known Lenny. Um, and I, I gleaned what I could and I put together a script that, uh, managed to, uh, attract Christy and Steven's attention. Uh, I'd worked with them on the post um, and then managed to attract Bradley's attention through Christy and Steven, which Christy can talk about at more length. Um, and then, you know, and then I heard words that no screenwriter wants to hear, which is, you know, page one, page one rewrite. Um, and, you know, the script was clearly going to be shelved because Bradley wanted to go in a different direction. And normally in those situations, the writer is shelved as well. Um, but Fortunately, whatever the movie gods, you know, smiled upon me uh, and Bradley asked if I would join him in this adventure as I had already done a bit of research and I was thrilled. Um, now, when you have Bradley Cooper joining your movie as a writer, you don't know what to expect because he's a great actor and a great director, but, you know, is he going to get into the muck? And I shortly found out that not only was he going to get into the muck, but he was going to go so deep that I was going to struggle to keep up, which is not something I'm used to doing. Um, you know, Bradley read everything I had read and more. Bradley wanted to talk to everyone I had talked to and more. Bradley watched all the video there was. There's this book, uh, John Gruen's book about uh, the family, which, you know, he he spent three months with you guys in Italy in 1968 or 69, uh, and that book became a touchstone in part because the book was this really wonderful insight into the family, which was Bradley's clear focus, but also had these wonderful audio tapes of Gruen talking to all of you guys, which Bradley listened to ad nauseum. I mean, so much so that he used to be able to write stuff and I'd be like, oh, which book did you get that from? And he'd be like, no, no, no I just wrote that because he literally could channel Lenny in that way. That's how deep he went. So it was really, um, Bradley was a lightning rod once he came on board. And Christy, from your perspective, and you had, you know, worked with, with, with Josh on the post, as he said, and you'd, you know, also of course produced West Side Story with Steven. So that Bernstein connection, obviously there, but what was it like from your perspective of also navigating these moving parts and bringing Bradley aboard and everything and realizing he was the best person to direct it? Well, we brought him aboard first to star and when it became clear that Steven wasn't going to direct it, Bradley said, Hey, I just made this movie called A Star is Born. It hadn't come out yet. It was in April of the year that the movie came out. And he said, would you be willing to come watch it? And if you like it, maybe I could throw my hat in the ring to direct the film. And so Josh, Stephen, Kate Capshaw, and I all went to watch the film. And 20 minutes in, Stephen leaned over to Bradley. He's like, you are directing this movie. I think he's said an explicative that I won't say. <laughs> um, so anyway, so we signed him on to direct and star. And then it actually just really, we, we got the blessing of the family. Right, Jamie? Do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, eventually, but finish okay, your great. thought. So we got the blessing of the family, and then we were sort of off to the races. Um, Bradley goes deep, as Josh was saying, research. He, he went 
to every department head, and he really worked closely with every department head. It was all in the prep work for him. We worked for three and a half years honing everything, getting it right, getting the makeup right with Kazu, working with Mark Bridges, identifying the right costumes, working with Kevin, figuring out the right sets, the sets we were building, the locations we were going to. We wanted to go to the hallowed grounds of where Lenny and Felicia lived, and so we went to Carnegie Hall, we went to Tanglewood, we went to Ely Cathedral. We really, he, he, he was like, this movie has got to be authentic and we're not making the movie unless we're prepared to make it. So for me, it was like kind of easy to like get on board with that man who was so passionate about everything he was doing. He showed me what he was doing. We did screen tests. We did, we did film tests on hair and makeup and, and we just, we really like went to great lengths to prep the film. So when we got there, it's kind of easy. Jamie, I will come to you next. Um, I know that there has been no shortage of interest in making um, a Bernstein movie over the years. What was it about the script and this this creative team that allowed you and your um, your family to realize that trust them not only with your father's story, but also as we can see, this is equally your mother's story as well. Right. Well, that I will tell you was Bradley's own idea, yeah. and uh, the the original uh, notion of this project when it was first uh, thought up 15 years ago was that it would be more of a conventional biopic kind of uh, film. And, and then uh, when Bradley suggested that his approach would be different, that he pre preferred to make it an exploration of Lenny and Felicia, like more of a portrait of a marriage, my brother and sister and I were so impressed and pleased with that idea and that angle, that lens through which to tell the story that, that we, from the very beginning of Bradley's arrival on the project, we felt like we were in really good and unusually good hands. Well, it shows very much in the, in the final results. So, and I'll, I'll just keep going right down. Um, Kazu, I know that of all, our, all the artists on stage, um, I know everyone must have spent their time with Bradley, but I imagine you spent maybe the most with him, <laughs> just the hours of application and everything. But can you talk about that? And I, I wonder if you could talk especially about um, just the process of aging him. I mean, we the movie starts with him, you know, toward the end of his life, and then we, you know, it, talk about just um, all the, the decisions that you made in going into that. Oh, the decision, uh, okay. Especially like an old stage or? Yes, yeah, particularly, yeah. Uh, so, you know, like, the actually for me Lenny was that oldest stage when I saw him on TV and uh, when I was young and uh, uh, I was really inspired by him and I loved his look because such an iconic person and uh, with a passion for the music and a love for the music and it shows through and so uh, that time like uh, 35 years ago I, I really thought like oh I want to work on a film about him and finally came true. And so I love his look. So at first, the, third, the first test makeup we did with Bradley was uh, middle stage, like middle age and old, oldest stage. And so, because that's kind of the hardest and the uh, middle stage is the uh, most appeared in film. So it was important part two. And so uh, the old, old age is very difficult because uh, when people 
get older, what happened is not by adding on the surface, it's more like a kind of shrink from inside, and that's the uh, age what happens. So prosthetic, only thing we can do is adding on the surface. So we have to figure out what would be the best way to convincingly make Bradley look like Lenny and at the same time getting him older. So uh, that was a point. And uh, uh, we went through a lots of tests. And the first one was uh, just an internal test I call like at my workshop. Then we went to a Disney concert hall and actually conducting. And we tried like a five different stages on the two days. It was kind of a crazy schedule. <laughs> I said, I told Bradley, like, we don't do that usually, you know, because it's one, one look a day is enough. And so, uh, and the oldest look took the longest because there's a more element to add on to him. And we made a body suit, you know, he had a really big gut. And so we had to add and also posture changes. And also arm has to be aged and with the hair punched in. And earlobes yeah. even. I was so impressed by how perfectly you were able to recreate my father's ears. Right. He, had a, <laughs> he had a big, big ear, too. And so we had to uh, put... They, they uh, were very good, very big in and inside and out. Right. <laughs> and so I put a plastic piece to stick out Bradley's ear, too. And we made a, a nose plug because he wanted to talk, uh, well, he wanted to talk like Lenny, that sounded like Lenny. And so the first thing he asked me, can you make a nose plug to change my voice? And so uh, I made a nose plug with a different size of holes. So kind of uh, give him uh, more like a, uh, nasal voice, you know, and so as he gets so old, you, you put it inside, inside, yeah, he, he had it all I the didn't time, even know. yeah, and so, uh, of course, you know, like uh, Lenny's nose was wider than Bradley's, so I, I made it wider at the same time, so change his nose shape and the voice too, and I made it like a several different stages because, uh, as he get older, voice changed, but he figured out how to change his voice with just using a one type of a nose plug. Then that goes in and we, you know, like a, put the board cap and uh, forehead, cheek, cheeks and nose and lips and everything, the neck. And that stage took about five hours. And usually like a call time is like a one o'clock. <laughs> you know, and we and, got to set at seven and he was Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. And so because he wanted to appear as Lenny on set when the crew call happened. And so usually, you know, makeup, as a makeup artist, we have more time to spend until the, the film is, you know, filming is ready, but we have to finish it because he has to d direct the film. You know? So, yeah, that was it. It's like 1 a.m. and then six hours in the, and then oh, right. exactly. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Mark, very yeah. long. <laughs> Mark, um, your costumes in Maestro are remarkable in also capturing this progression over many decades, um, but also because um, you know you having two characters who were very, very beautiful, very stylish people at all these different eras. I mean, what were some of the challenges and the pleasures of dressing Lenny and Felicia throughout um, the course of the, the the story? You know, uh, we're always trying to tell a story. We had to do forty year passage of time the ups and downs of their lives, the different social circles that they ran in. Um, so figuring that out 
we had a lot of visual references with a, a well-documented life, but, um, you know, you, you, there's where the imagination comes or you find an amazing piece that you could go off of for each period. And, um, you know, I worked very closely with Bradley. Bradley was tireless in coming to fittings. He'd give me three hours on Tuesday and then three hours on Wednesday and three hours on Thursday. You know, he was dedicated to coming to those fittings. And we really worked very hard. He mentioned it last night. Do you remember how much we worked on those costumes? And I was like, I sure do. Uh, and he was he was tireless in that respect. And, and Carrie was a real joy to because her acting process is such, you know, I'm kind of giving an outside shell to their inner life. And so it was incredibly exciting to work with an actress like Carrie and figure these things out. And also when I do research, you know, I'll look at there's a great uh, biography about Leonard and, and uh, of course, Jamie's book, famous father, girl. And, you know, you're reading this and, and taking flights of imagination, but also reading between the lines on what this is and what it could be in terms of clothes and telling a story. You mentioned, of course, there's such a rich photo record for, for inspiration. Were there any particularly distinctive signature outfits or touches that you were like especially pleased to incorporate? Or You know, one of our favorites is um, a, a costume that is uh, was taken in 1976, I think. Uh, and it's a small period of Leonard's life where he had a beard. And we see him make his announcement of artists must pursue whatever they need to do. And uh, it was really striking. It's a the striped shirt with the neckerchief. And it was perfect for that moment because it, it echoed what he was saying verbally. So he was visually. And uh, that's a color photograph. And, you know, it's perfect for that moment in the film. So why not use it? And Bradley uh, jokingly called it his Pirates of Penzance costume. <laughs> So, so we really got a kick out of that, and I, I think it's it's that meeting of research and appropriateness for the script, and appropriateness for a director and an actor, all happening at one time, and that that's one of our favorite costumes. Kevin, uh, two of the film's most important locations, of course, are uh, the Bernstein family's uh, their Upper West Side um, apartment, which had to be recreated, I understand, and their Connecticut home, which you were fortunately able, the, the film was actually able, was able to shoot at. Um, to film in the actual country yes, house. exactly. Yeah. And they're both so seamlessly um, done, but they're very two very different challenges. Can you just speak about the decisions that went into restoring that sense of place to both? Yeah. Well, I think they're, the intimacy of their domestic life was really critical to get into the background of what their characters were like and what kind of people they hung out with. And, but also their private life in the country and how that intersected with the other. Um, the Bernsteins opened up their country house that was filled with memorabilia, scrapbooks. We could get into a, amazing research that and Felicia's paintings and things on the walls and snapshots around that led us to understand the, the depth of their relationship and what 
kind of life they had and from the, the games they played on the shelves and things like that. And um, that led to an understanding of how to detail their life in the city with the activities that went on in, that, in, the, in the city and especially the legendary Dakota apartment that you mentioned that we were lucky enough to get into the actual real apartment so we could scale duplicate moldings, get the feeling right, and then um, uh, add the layers of all the things that sort of represented their, their style and their lifestyle with, their, with the parties and the Thanksgiving dinner and things like that. So I think you, know, you get the technical stuff done of, of the periods, but you always, Bradley was always like, come back to the center of understanding what is the emotional story that we're telling. Always go back to that as a touchstone. What is this scene saying? And that was always the non-tangible thing that you tried to in inject into the design as you were going. In the earlier part of the film, I'm struck by um, the incredible kind of formal playfulness of the sets in that first half in black and white. And just when we see his bedroom uh, with this curtain that looks like a theater curtain almost, and then leading into the hallway and then morphing into the, the balconies at Car Carnegie, Carnegie Hall. I'm just wondering, it was just such a kind of joy to see those, those moments. Can you talk about that, this movement between onstage and offstage throughout that the set? was modeled after the actual Carnegie Hall artist studios that were kind of on the top floors of Carnegie Hall that housed musicians and artists. And, and um, we modeled it after sort of the slope of the skylights that exist now. And, um, and, but it was very complex because of that camera move, the single shot. So we went through many, many incarnations and fine-tuned the angle of the ceilings, which pieces are going to fly, the elaborate crane shot so that we could do it practically, go out in the hallway and actually into the top-tier box of Carnegie Hall. Um, it was pretty much what Bradley conceived on one of our first meetings together. And it went through many incarnations, but I think he got the product that he originally had in his head. Steve, a movie in which music plays such a role as this, obviously it has to sound extraordinary, and it does. Um, and you're no stranger to mixing sound on musical films with La La Land, and uh, you'd work with Bradley on A Star Is Born. Um, and with that collaboration already having, you having had a relationship with him already, but what were some of the fresh challenges and the goals sound-wise on, on a movie like this? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, him and I have a, uh, understanding that you know if there's something on camera that's being played or being sung he wants that to be live and that way that the audience can be much more you know um connected with the the material versus us trying to fake it and just so you know the goal was always you know we're going to do this movie about Leonard Bernstein and he's going to conduct and we're going to have orchestras and we're going to have choirs and we want to do that live and the, the technical challenge is to make sure that we can record it in a way that nobody's used to hearing it. You know, you, we're all used to hearing, you know, classical music on the radio or, you know, even in, in, in movies. But, in you know, the way that you can get the audience in the middle of an orchestra uh, to feel that the feeling that he must have felt or that the, the players must have felt to be in the middle of an orchestra, that was always the goal to just be a, as authentic and a, as immersive as possible. And so that was a lot of discussion for, for years on what was going to be live, what wasn't. And it turned out pretty much anything that's on camera being played is live. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, a little bit of sleep lo lost on that, but you know, we were able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And then also just, sorry. And then to continue the, the conversational pieces, it was always important to him that, you know, the conversations and the, the arguments or the, the dialogue always felt natural. Like, you know, people would just talk over each other sometimes and, that, and that's okay. You know? And so it, it was always a careful dance of what, you know, what his desire was and what he wanted to hear. You know, some of the big party scenes, all the extras were talking, everybody was talking. And you're able to do that in a technical way if you know in advance that that's, what's, that's what we're going to go through. And so um, him and I had many discussions about that and just having it feel real and feel authentic and have the actors talk over the, the party scenes. And that's why it feels that way, because it was that way. Yannick, uh on this film, you essentially trained Bradley to, in the art of conducting a, a crash course, as it were. Um, what I just have to imagine there are common assumptions, misunderstandings about what a conductor does and how they do it that you wanted to correct, or perhaps you know. And just tell us about what the experience was like um, training Bradley I mean, in this. Conducting to begin with is a very, very mysterious craft. I mean, I don't know that us conductors know exactly what we're doing anyway. Um, <laughs> No, we know what we're doing. But what I mean is that we don't know exactly which gestures we're doing. Because the thing is that there are common things that every conductor learn, and that I could probably teach this entire room in about five minutes. And it mostly has to do with the right hand and which holds the baton. But nevertheless, this is international to every conductor. But the rest of it is all different, because we have to embody the music. So bring Leonard Bernstein, one of the most documented figure of classical music and of conducting. And I would say probably the most influential conductor, I mean, influential musician by far, but also conductor, um, because he was a trailblazer at not being afraid of showing emotion on the podium. Uh, before him, I mean, I'm not saying people would not do this, but there was a, a lot of this kind of traffic cup um, thing. You know, you just stay there and you make sure that everyone is together. For Bernstein, it was all about living the music with everything in his body. And I think that Bradley, because he's a fabulous actor and because as it's been mentioned now, uh, seven times, uh, his research is incredible and relentless and fantastic and so detailed and deep. Um, he came to me knowing the mimics, knowing you know the shoulders and knowing all of that. But how do you make it believable so that he can conduct the London Symphony Orchestra and Chorus in Mahler's Second Symphony, which is notoriously one of the most difficult moments for a professional conductor, let alone someone who's not a conductor. So my goal was to actually not, we didn't start from scratch saying, oh, let's have a course in how conducting goes. It was more to take where he was and then give him some technical assurance whilst leaving him free to be Leonard Bernstein as an actor, which is, an emotional abandon, if I were to describe it. Because that would have been such a mistake in that movie if you portray Bernstein uh, as a conductor and it looks like a school band 
something, you know, and nothing, no offense to school band conductors, we need those. But I mean, it's not exactly who Lenny was. <laughs> so um, we found ways for being in preparation and also on locations to let him be free to express while still really be able to do one, two, three, four at the right place. Because it does indeed drive us crazy, classical musicians, when we see a conductor that's like one, two, one, two. No, it's the other way around, buddy. So, I mean, um, that was important. That's very basic, what I just said, but that's... Uh, there was a lot of time where you were telling the crew that they were doing it wrong, because we would all be conducting all <laughs> Like, that's wrong, buddy. <laughs> Well, and speaking of, I have to ask really quickly about young conductors. I mean, I love the scene at the end where he is uh, teaching his student, and it's basically you teaching Bradley, teaching uh, as Bernstein teaching this younger uh, uh, conducting student, and who has to be good but a little bit off. I mean, what was? Can you talk about just the putting that scene together? Well, yeah. I'm glad you bring this up because also as conducting consultant, my work was especially with Bradley, and it was with Bradley in every scene. But of course, I did have to coach also this fabulous actor, Jordan Dobson, who was playing William, who's actually an actor, also not a conductor. And then you get to have this, like you just said, and I'm glad you said, yeah, it has to be believable that this person is talented, but not quite. So there were some ways to do that. And um, not to reveal too many secrets, but actually that scene was the first we shot together. You know, the very, very first day for me on set. But was it even the, yeah, it was first, the first day for all? First of us. day of all, right? So that was that at Tanglewood. It exists in a different, slightly different form. It is documented, that scene in Beethoven 8th Symphony, coming from Schleswig-Holstein in Germany, which was another place where Lenny taught a lot of young musicians. And um, that was already, he captured by then all of, and this is after the longest with Kazu also, you know, you know, the five hours for, because it was at its oldest. So we had to uh, talk about all the aspects at once, uh, the teaching of how effortlessly at that moment Lenny could take and just show this like upbeat that he wanted the young conductor to do. But like an older conductor season, they don't have to do a lot and everybody understands. And then you get the other young conductor who's, tripping over the, the, the music stand, because when we're young, we want to do it all at once. I still want to do this, even though I'm not that young. But uh, so, um, yeah, that was a fascinating thing. And I'm so glad that this scene is there, because Lenny, the teacher, is also maybe what makes one of the things that makes, to this day, Leonard Bernstein such an important figure in music. Thank you for that. Um, I think now, at this time, we have time for a few questions um, from our press audience. Uh, I will, uh, starting, uh, yes, John, here with you. Um, I have a question for Mark Bridges yeah. um, about the costumes for Felicia. They are so nuanced and beautiful, and at the same time, they're often the first signifiers of the decade we are in. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you said they're tied to the decade that... They're signifying Signif the decade, absolutely. the first thing. That it, it was very important to me to, to keep the audience in tune with the passage of time. And when we're telling the story, you know, we need to understand that they meet in the 40s and they are still in love and connected during the 50s when he runs backstage and he needs his touchstone 
during a break and in, in conducting. And then when we go to the 70s, I think you're understanding that the developments are happening in the relationship as well as fashion, fashion's changing and the people are, are changing within themselves as well. So hopefully you see a color palette change, you see a hem length change, and that uh, helps the story move along and, and connects the audience with that passage of time. Hello, uh, congratulations on this extraordinary film. I think my question will be more directed to Mr. Singer. Uh, something that strikes me about the movie, something that strikes me too about Star is Born was the spontaneity, the, uh, how spontaneous is everything. So I wanted to know more about how in the script there's room for creating these moments of spontaneity or there's room for improvisation, how, how you work with Bradley about those moments. So, you know, what's... Repeat the question. Right, so I think you're asking about that the, there's a lot of spontaneity uh, and it feels like a, a good bit of improvisation. And so how do you, how, how do you uh, uh, come at that? And that's where, you know, uh, I think Bradley will be able to better answer that once... You know, uh, you know, God willing, we have a, a settlement with SAG and they get what they deserve. Um, but for the meantime, what I'll just put forth is, you know, Bradley and I workshopped the script a ton. Uh, one of the things we did all the time was read back and forth, uh, which I had never done before, which was extraordinary because, you know, you, you get you hear things that you don't you don't feel in the same way when you're just sitting and trying to reread at your computer. Um, and that process was just incredible. Um, and we refined and refined and honed and honed. And then we had, you know, larger read throughs, uh, with friends of Bradley. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're building with a script is a foundation. I believe that certainly in a movie like this, the script is a blueprint, right? And you have to have freedom on the day, right? And, What's wonderful when you're working with your director, who's also your lead actor, is that he was as deep, deeper than I was into the character and understanding the character and the dynamics, and as has been discussed, that marriage, and that that, that is our center point of, of that marriage. And I believe he brought Carrie in with him so that they both knew those, they knew, and I think, Jamie, you could speak to this even better, they both knew Lenny and Felicia so well that they were able to improvise on the day often, you know, using the script as a foundation, but then going into something that would feel even more natural. And for me, my favorite scenes in the piece are not the ones that are purely scripted, but the, are the ones where there's a real balance between what was written on the page and then that natural organic improvisation that makes it feel spontaneous. Uh, my question would be for Jamie. I wanted to know what it was like seeing the final film <clears throat> and if there was anything that was like heartwarming to see or challenging to watch. And what did you think of Maya's portrayal of you? Where are you? I can't even see where you are. Oh, hi. What was it like to see the final version of the film? Yeah, what was challenging to see or heartwarming to see? Oh, well, uh, Bradley was so generous about including my brother and sister and me on his own journey with this film, 
which was something he didn't have to do necessarily. He could have just gone off once he had the license, once, once we gave him permission to make the film, he could have just gone off and done that and never consulted with us again had he wanted to. But instead, he uh, made us part of his own journey. And so we saw so much being developed. He sent us pictures on his phone, and he showed us some dailies and some little assemblies of footage. And so we were really watching the film coming together and saw several iterations of what was close to the final version of the film. So for us, it's been an enormous journey as well. And last night, seeing it in Geffen Hall, you know, the very hall where we watched our dad conduct hundreds of times as we were growing up, was, was so gratifying and such a almost mystical circularity for our lives that we shared with the three of us together and with our parents. And seeing the final version on that giant screen with the incredible Dolby Atmos sound was uh, just overwhelmingly thrilling. And, and also very surreal, of course. All the way along, it's been surreal to see these two people becoming more and more and more like our own parents, uh, but at different ages, and sometimes they're older than we are now, and sometimes they're way younger, and sometimes we're the kids, and it's just, you can imagine. It's like having a very strange dream where you're in your house, but it's sort of not your house, and, and you're with your parents, but they're, they're, they're sort of not your parents, but they are. So it has that dreamlike quality for us, but what a ride. I think that is a beautiful note to end on, and thank you all, and congratulations on this extraordinary film. Thank you for being here. Thank you.